0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Ohio University Press podcast. Today, we sit down with author Julia Mackenzie Munemo to discuss her new memoir, The Bookkeeper, a memoir of race, love and legacy. Julia, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you, Zoe. So let's start off with learning a little bit more about you as an author. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: I would say that the story of me wanting to be a writer really begins with my father's death when I was five at his funeral. A man who I believed was associated with his career as a writer came up to me and asked me when he was going to see my first novel. That moment was really transformative. It really planted a seed for me and I think because my father was a mystery to me because he died when I was so young, I sort of always felt that my dad was my subject. I spent a lot of time in high school, you know, sitting in cafes and writing in my journal and trying to figure out who my dad had been. He was mentally ill, um, He committed suicide. So his death was really surrounded by mystery. So by the time I was going to college, I knew that I wanted to be a writer. But in the 90s, creative writing really meant writing fiction or poetry, and I tried those out, but not with so much success. So after kind of hitting my head against the wall with fiction and poetry, I eventually changed course. From there I went to graduate school, I got a master's in education, and it's also true that at that time my husband was in a PhD program. We were living in New York City, he was studying at Columbia. And he ended up needing to travel for his research. And he's from Zimbabwe. So we went there first. Later, we lived in Botswana. And in those places, I found time to write again. And so I came back from that year abroad with a book-length project. But it it was not this book. It was kind of a series of vignettes about living in Zimbabwe and then Botswana and trying to understand, again, my father and his death. But it didn't really have a narrative arc. I didn't really know how to tell the story of mourning my father 25 years after his death while living abroad. Um, It just kind of didn't make sense. So I put the project away and eventually, once my kids were both in elementary school, I realized that I needed to get back to writing. And so it was at that point that I applied to MFA programs. And that's where I was when I really found the connective tissue between my experiences living in Zimbabwe with a Zimbabwean husband and mourning my father and trying to tell my own story. That's where I was when the bookkeeper was born.
0: Wonderful. That's great context. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the, the plot of the bookkeeper. Um, so the the story hinges really on this this shocking discovery of some of the novels that your father had written. So they were um, pornographic novels featuring slave characters. And um, so I'm curious, what was your initial reaction to the discovery of these novels?
1: Uh, Shame. I was horrified. I, I, I was angry and scared. It was this weird kind of surreal experience of being like, backwards hurt, right? That, that I, I felt the sense of betrayal that my father would do this thing to me, despite the fact that, you know, he wrote many of those books before I was born. And he died when I was so young. Of course, he had no idea that I would grow up to marry a black man. But that didn't really change the fact that it really felt like a betrayal. And so I, I hid them in my closet. <laughs> That's, that, that was my reaction, was to hide them.
0: Well, so speaking of of your marriage in this context, so you discussed how you met your husband, you've mentioned that he's from Zimbabwe. So when did he learn that your father had written these novels? How did he react? And then how did it affect your relationship?
1: Yeah. Um, when he learned is a, is a, an interesting question. And I try to interrogate that a little bit in the book. I, I said just now that I hid the books in my closet for 10 years, which is absolutely true. They, they appeared, a cousin of mine brought them to me when our firstborn was about two years old. My impression at the time was that I did not know those books, and I had never seen them before, and I didn't know that particular pseudonym. But I, I will say Ngoni, my husband, was basically unsurprised by those novels, when he saw them, he, he said something like, you know, somebody has to write these things. And he told me about seeing books like that when he was growing up in Zimbabwe. Um, he said something like, you know, in, in trash piles and at flea markets. And I, I was really compelled by that image. Um, like those are the two places that books like this would appear. Um, and what he said was, you know, when something is policed the way interracial romance was in Zimbabwe, but also in the U.S., Uh, It becomes fetishized. And, you know, so as an academic, his first reaction was to kind of analyze them. Not not them, he didn't ever read them, but the sort of idea of them. Uh, Insofar as he was interested in analyzing them, he did. And then he really put them aside. The books did not seem to bother him the way that they bothered me. What he said to me that made kind of the biggest difference for my process when I was writing the book was, he said, the scandalous part of your father's career is the least interesting part for me about it. Um, His father also died when he was young, although he was older than I was when mine died. But he said, you know, you have a treasure trove of materials from which to learn about your dad. And I, my husband said, you know, I, I have nothing, I have nothing like that. And so in a strange way, Um, You know, it sounds sort of strange to say this, but in a strange way, he was sort of envious that I had this archive to go back into and try to figure out who my dad had been because he didn't have anything like that.
0: Well, speaking of that, so let's step back and talk a little bit about the research process. So, you know, you you say that you did have this archive of material that he had written, but um, how else did you go about researching your family history, particularly your father's story? Or the bookkeeper?
1: Yeah. Um, the books were really sort of a, touched, a touchstone for me. So I started with them, and then every time I was blocked somewhere else, I, I came back to them. Um, and I did things with them other than read them, right? Like I made lists of his pseudonyms. Um, I made a spreadsheet of his publication history, I had this whole plan that I was going to read his books in chronological order. That didn't really turn out to be the right way to do it, but, um, but that's, I, I tried to do that. Uh, I ended up reading them in subject order. Um, understanding his timeline is really what I was was trying to do. And so I did other things too. I, I got, uh, my mother gave me a stack of letters that he had written to her when they were separated for a period of time before they got married. He was living in Rome. She had been with him in Rome um, and left him there. And he wrote her these really intense letters that she shared with me. Uh, I went to the hospital where he died and I got his medical records and I read those. That was intense. I I spoke to his friends. I spoke to his living family members. Uh, I spoke to his first wife. Um, I spoke to his colleagues in the field, um, I spoke to other writers in the industry and his agent, um, some of his editors. I went and visited a publishing house in New York that has developed kind of out of the ashes of one of my dad's publishing houses. And I spoke with the, with the guy who runs that, you know, in, in an attempt to kind of trace the history of this industry.
0: So then what were some of the what were some of the challenges of writing a story like The Bookkeeper from the perspective of a white woman with two black sons? Um so what are the stakes of reckoning with this history for your children?
1: Yeah. It's an interesting question. Um I'm going I'm going to turn it on its head a little bit because I think what I wonder is what are the stakes of not reckoning with this history for my children, right? I am a white woman living in America, and I can essentially hide from my legacy if I want to. But what I find, and you know, I, I imagine some of your listeners will find this too, but um, black people in this country can't hide from their legacies, right? The history of slavery follows every black person in this country, whether they're descendants of enslaved people or not into any white space they enter. And so I really had to ask myself, you know, after hiding those books in my closet for as long as I did, what what that was modeling for my kids that I that I could just hide from my role in the history of what America has become. Um, You know, and that felt like a privilege being able to hide from my legacy and and one that I didn't want to model for them. So I guess, you know, to be able to talk to my children about what it means for them to be growing into black men in America, I really needed to be able to talk to them about what it means for me to be a white woman in this country. And until I decided to write this story, I, I hadn't really reckoned with my race. Um, so, you know, I guess another way of asking that question is sort of, would my story be different if I had married a white man and if my children were white? And I don't know I don't I, you know I don't think in maybes and perhapses I, I kind of try to face what's actually in front of me um, but I do believe that even if my family of progeny were white this would still be a legacy that I need would need to confront right um, the the book would sort of lack the central irony <laughs> that I built it around but it wouldn't make it any less important to the work of being a white person in this country, to the narrative of this country. Um, so, you know, if, if, if an, another way of asking that question is sort of what lessons do I hope to impart to my kids by writing this book, I think it would be essentially what Faulkner said best, right? The past is never dead. It's not even past, right? I, I want my kids to know that that we are all influenced by those who came before us. And even when our story is inconvenient or scary or threatening, you know, threatens to upend our understanding of reality, even then we really need to face it. Um, you know, and, and maybe this is just a, just a place to sort of put in a note that one of the other legacies that I confront, as I mentioned, my father was mentally ill and committed suicide. And and so that, that also becomes uh, a truth that it was important for me to model to my children that we could look at and that it could be something that we could talk about openly. Um, You know, I want my kids to be able to reckon with that just as much as I know that they need to be able to reckon with their race.
0: So throughout the book, you mention um, your Jewish heritage as another part of your identity that you're both connected to, but also in a way secularly removed from. And so how does this familial history intersect with the other issues of race and racism presented in your narrative?
1: I'm more than secularly removed from this part of my heritage, you know, in, in many ways. Right. Um, my home, the the home that I grew up in was basically devoid of religion. And my mom is, uh, is a, my mom is a wasp, right? She, uh, uh, not a religious Protestant, but she was, my, my home was sort of culturally waspy growing up. Right. Which meant that it was absolutely not Jewish. Um, I obviously knew that I had a Jewish grandmother and a Jewish aunt, and those were facts of my life. But their religion was really um, not something that I understood well. It was not something that I was I was raised to understand well. So I kind of had I had a task ahead of me then in in my research. Um, I had to understand a, a little bit more about Jewish history in order to understand who my dad had been, because he was raised absolutely Jewish, right? He was raised um, Orthodox by, by one reckoning. My, my mother would say conservative, my aunt would say Orthodox. I don't actually know. Um, so the thing that I found most interesting when I was doing my research, and for a while I really went down this track, was um, that there was a time in this country when Jews were not considered white. And uh, and so I wondered, like, was it possible that my father didn't consider himself white and that maybe that in some way gave him the feeling of permission that he maybe felt he needed to to write about slavery and to write from the perspective of of uh, of slaves? Um, ultimately, that is an idea that I, I reject. Um, my father grew up in Brooklyn. In the 40s and 50s his neighborhood was absolutely as far as i understand it divided by race and um you know there were there was a black woman who worked in his home right so so no matter how difficult things may have been for jews in brooklyn at that time uh i don't think it can compare to the discrimination and and racism that was faced by the black community in the same neighborhood. Um, so I think it's possible that my my, fam- my father's family felt like outsiders um, as, as immigrants or children of immigrants. Um, but I think they also considered themselves superior to the black people in their community. And I'll just say that, you know, in one of my dad's books, he makes it abundantly clear that that's his definition of whiteness is um, a feeling of superiority to black people, to, to people of color. Um, now, I'm not at all saying that that's how all Jews felt. I just, I have reason to believe that my grandparents did and that they raised him to feel that way too. So, you know, today, today for sure and historically for sure, Jews in America have felt that sense of otherness. Um, I just don't know that I, that I can really say that that my father did. Um, and so did that did, did his Jewishness give him sort of the permission that he felt he needed if, if he asked himself that question to write about people from a different racial background than him? Uh, I don't know, I, I, I would reject that idea, or I would ask him to interrogate that idea if, if he were alive today. Um, and you know, and that circles us back to a question that I ask in my book about um, you know, if someone of one racial or ethnic background really has the right to write about someone of another, um, uh, you know, it's it's a it's a problematic framing to say that my Jewish father felt he had more permission than than another white writer would have felt to write about black characters. And so um, you know, I, I would point here, and I and I do this in my book too, to um a, a wonderful book called The Racial Imaginary, which is edited by Claudia Rankin and Beth Lefreda. Um, and the thing that they say in their introduction that I just love and that I return to again and again is that the question of permission isn't really the place to start, right? Does the white writer have permission to write about a black character? That's that's not really it. What they ask is, um, what is the charisma from what, which you feel estranged? and And why do you want to enter and inhabit it? And so I guess if my dad were alive, I would ask him that question. Why did he, what was the charisma from which he felt estranged? Why did he want to inhabit it? And I think I come to some answers to that question in my book. But again, um, you know, I'll, I'll let your listeners read to find out.
0: Over the last decade, there's been more immediate attention paid to issues like police brutality and institutional racism than in the past. So, other than the fact that issues of race and racism are in the current public discourse, what compelled you to tell this story about your father, your family
1: now? Marilyn Robinson has this great quote in Gilead um, that our, that our doubts and questions should not be the mustache and walking stick in fashion at a particular moment and I, and I agree with that, and I think that's kind of where your question is coming from um, but Again, to sort of turn it on its head a little bit, I think I would say, um, you know, when we're talking about human lives, the the loss of human lives, violence against humans, um, the issue is so much more than a mustache and a walking stick. And, um, you know, the sort of, the aha moment for me was when Tamir Rice was killed. Uh, He was a 12-year-old boy who was killed in 2014, right before my son's 12th birthday. And so, yeah, I knew about that because of the increased media attention, right? Um, But that doesn't necessarily mean that there's been an increase in the violence, right? It means that, that more people are aware of the violence now. And so... So yes, I had this amazingly difficult moment where I was grappling for the first time with my son's mortality um, as a black boy in this country. But um, I I guess what what I'm saying is that the media attention was what mattered, was what got me going. Um, And so with that increased awareness, that the media attention brings comes, I think, a responsibility to accept this history, right? That that the scars of slavery are are still weeping, right? Um, And and so that reality, which became more uh, talked about in the mainstream has been the reality for many, many Americans for such a long time, far longer than recent media attention would lead some of us to believe. Um, And so, and so I guess, you know, my question is kind of how do those of us wearing blinders about that finally decide to wake up and remove them? And, and I told you about kind of my moment that jarred me out of my complacency. Um, You know, some of us won't ever wake up no matter how much media attention there is, but some of us will. And um, so I guess, what got me to really dig into this history and write this book now really was that, right? There isn't really another thing. Um, it was the realization that my kids could become targets of an increasingly militarized police force. And there's just nothing scarier than that in this world. Um, so when I finally woke up to that, which, um, you know, Tamir Rice died, what, 4 or 5 months after Michael Brown so so we were we were slowly waking up as a country um i just i couldn't continue to wear my blinders and so removing them meant facing who i was facing how i contribute to the to the whiteness of this country and what that means and facing my legacy so um yeah i guess i would just say uh the thing that i realized in that experience is that um my case isn't unusual really right like it is unusual most people don't have a treasure trove of slavery porn in their closet to analyze but it's not really unique every white American has a reckoning to do with her race um and so that's that's ultimately what I come to is, is this idea that that we as as white people need to really name that 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 race is not synonymous with black or latinx or asian race is also white um and so sort of what happens when we face that and we face our role in the history of this country?
0: Well, that's a great answer, Julia, thank you so much for your thoughtful answers to all these questions and your time.
1: You're welcome. Thank you
0: My name is Zoe Bassier, and you've been listening to Julia Mackenzie Munemo discuss her new book, The Bookkeeper: A Memoir of Race, Love, and Legacy, on the Ohio University Press podcast. All Ohio University Press and Swallow Press books are available in print and electronic editions and can be ordered from bookstores and online retailers. Please find us at ohioswallow.com. Thanks for listening.